All right, we're going to continue our study of the book of Leviticus this morning. And we have started showing that God can dwell with mankind only through sacrifice. And it's going to take a significant portion of the book, not quite half the book, to prove that point. And we want to see that this is very much what we realize as New Testament believers. The only way we can be saved is through the sacrifice of Christ. What I'm going to argue here is that God graciously has communicated the same concept to his people Israel. This is, this is a central focus of the book of Leviticus. God wants to hammer home to his people. You have no way of saving yourself. Salvation is only by a gracious gift to you. I'm giving you salvation by vicarious atonement, meaning an innocent, unblemished animal is dying in your place. That's your only hope. All to to set in the mind of the Israelite, yes, in fact, there's only one hope for me. And that is that ultimately God's ultimate messianic person who will be unblemished, faultless morally, is the only one qualified to die for me. All right, so let's continue on in this regard. Last week we saw that the first uh, category of sacrificial offerings in the book of Leviticus is what we're calling the ascension sacrifice. This is translated in most of our versions, the burnt offering. The Hebrew word for burnt offering is simply what goes up, what ascends to God in heaven. And this is the foundational sacrifice upon which all the other ones are going to be related. But because this is the most important sacrifice, it occurs first. All right, this sacrifice, as I'm saying, is designated by the Hebrew word going up. And it had several steps. And we started talking about those several steps last week. And, of course, the first one was the presentation of the animal. It had to be without defect. And it was up to the person who brought the sacrifice to ensure that he carefully inspect that sacrifice to make sure that it would pass the test of the priestly observer who would stand there and look at it as he brought it to the door of the tabernacle. And he would, that sacrifice would get scrutinized. If there was some, some smallest thing wrong with it, the priest would reject that sacrifice. And that way, God is teaching his people only a physically unblemished sacrifice will do, but 
Someday there's going to be a sacrifice who's unblemished morally. He's going to be, as we go through the scripture, we're going to learn that he has no sin of his own to die for. He is completely sinless. And that's, that's the intent of the entire Old Testament, to prove that to us. You know, here we have, as we heard about from Romans 9 today, the reality that very few Jewish individuals have come to, to know Christ. I know one. He's a great guy. His name is Craig. And uh, he's taught classes for me at the, at the university. He, he's just a, a tremendous encouragement that, oh, God is still saving some Jewish people. But not very many. The day is coming, though, and we're going to get to it in Romans 11, when all Israel will be saved. That will be a different day. Right now, in this current dispensation of God's grace, not very many are being saved. Still, though, we witness to Jewish individuals when we meet them. I'll never forget the day uh, that I was a student at Syracuse University, and one of my Christian buddies of, of mine and I were witnessing in Lawrenson dorm. And we knocked on a door, and a fellow opened the door, and his rather small uh, dorm room was crammed with people. And I thought, oh, we've hit the mother load. You know, we get to witness to all these people all at once. And so I told him that I was there to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to uh, students. And uh, he said, well, you wouldn't want to bother with us. And I said, why is that? He says, because we're having an, a meeting of B'nai B'rith. Okay, now, that's one of the more militant Jewish campus organizations. Well, it's more than a campus organization. It's a world organization. Literally, the Sons of the Covenant is what B'nai B'rith means. And uh, I looked at him and I said, terrific. The New Testament tells me I need to present the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I would love it if you would give me 15 minutes to describe from the Old Testament how Jesus Christ is your Messiah. And he looked at me. He said, you can't do that. Oh, yes, I can, I said. I just won't go outside the Old Testament. I kept a little sheet of paper in my Bible, and uh, it showed me all the Old Testament well, well, all the ones I knew at that time, all the Old Testament verses that predicted exactly who Messiah was going to be. And then the New Testament fulfillment, but I didn't get into that. All right, so uh, we started off, and I began to witness, and I finally got to Isaiah 53. My 15 minutes had elapsed a significant amount of time ago, <laughs> But everybody seemed interested, and they weren't telling me, okay, time for you to quit now. You hit your 15 minutes is up, so I kept going. By the time 
I read certain portions of Isaiah. Well, I think I read the whole chapter. Uh, one of the guys raised his hand. He said, is that in the Bible? That's in the Old Testament? I've never heard that passage. Well, that's not a passage that, you know, typically in the synagogue they make a big deal about because that was one of the main passages that early Christians were using as a polemic against the Jewish idea that Christ was not the Messiah. So I, you know, made some comments about Isaiah chapter 53, and I said, now, are there any questions you have for me? And the head guy who had welcomed me at the door said, I have never heard anything like this. This blows my mind. That was a real common (laughs) phrase back in the 70s. It blows my mind. And uh, he he said, "I I just can't process all of this. And so I said, well, I'd be glad to come back to another meeting and we can talk about it some more. Uh, He said, well, you know, I left him a tract with, uh, you know, contact information. He said, well, I'll contact you again. Never heard from him again, but the, the way the Spirit was working in their hearts and probably the resistance to that was almost palpable. Nonetheless, it's a great joy to be able to witness to Jewish individuals. And the one thing that we start with is Christ had no sin of his own. He was perfect, no blemish. When Deuteronomy said, basically, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your being, with all your, your might. He's the only person in human history who has ever fulfilled Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. We don't have a hope. When the Lord said to Abraham, walk before me and be thou perfect, Christ is the only one who fulfilled that command to be perfect. Every thought he thought, every word he spoke was exactly what God intended him to speak and to think, and every action he did was exactly what the Father was pleased with and what the Father's will was. This was central, foundational to the sacrificial system. And Leviticus makes a big point about about that. All right, next we said the second aspect of this ascension offering is taking one's hand and leaning it along with his, some of his body weight anyway, to bow that animal's head down. Uh, to keep the animal from raising its head back up again. Uh, As remember, there were three kinds of sacrifices, and the one we're talking about here in verse 4 is a herd animal, most likely a bull. 
Now, a bull is a powerful animal. Have you ever, have you ever inadvertently strayed into a fenced area with a bull in it? <laughs> One time I was pheasant hunting. Hunting always gets me into trouble. But anyway, I was pheasant hunting, and I, I wandered into this pasture, and I'm looking for pheasants, and all of a sudden I look about... 300 yards away from me is a bull with horns. And he's not happy that I'm in his pasture. And he turns around and he charges at me. You never saw me move any faster than I did that day. I did not want to tangle with one of these things. Well, that's the kind of animal that you've brought for a sacrifice. And if you're going to keep him in place, you're going to have to put a lot of force on him. That's what this idea is. Now, let's take a look at Leviticus 1.4. Once again, we just looked at this last time. He shall lay his hand. In other words, put his weight on the head of the burnt offering. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is where we left off last time. Now, this word, there's a Hebrew verb that is the verb kafir. And there is the noun form kapur. Uh, and there's the place of atonement, the kapurath. That was what was on the Ark of the Covenant with the, with the uh, outstretched wings. Those, those seraphim that one on each end of the, of the ark, reaching their wings toward each other. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would pour out the blood of that sacrificial animal that, on that special, holiest of all days in Israel's calendar. All right, so uh, the idea of atonement is found, I think, probably most clearly in Genesis 32:20. The thing that makes this passage in Genesis 32 so important is that it's a, a non-theological context. And oftentimes, we can learn the most about what Hebrew words meant by looking at the way Old Testament authors under inspiration of the Spirit used events from daily life to illustrate the meaning of a word that ends up then being used as a very important theological term. You can't think of a more important Old Testament term than the concept of atonement. So let's go back to Genesis 32, back to Genesis. The context here is that the Lord has told Jacob to return home. And there's just one problem with that. The reason why Jacob went to Paddan Aram in the the first place was because his mother had overheard her son Esau, Jacob's twin, tell or vocalize the fact that after Isaac died, his father Isaac died, 
and the time of mourning was over, he was going to kill Jacob. So, Rebekah tells Jacob, look, I'll tell you what, go to visit my relatives in Pedan Aram for a few days, and then we'll, you know, time will make it so that Esau's wrath is uh, cooled down. Then you can come back home. Of course, it was way more than a few days. I served seven years for uh, Rachel, and then our for Leah, and then he got, or Rachel, he got Leah instead, then another seven years. Uh, So he was gone a long time. But then the Lord says, okay, I want you to go back home now. So he sets off going back home, and he sends a party out, a scouting party, to see, you know, if they can find Esau, see what kind of an attitude he has about Jacob. And so the guys go out, they come back, and they report to uh, Jacob, hey, we ran into Esau, and guess what? He's coming to visit you, along with 400 men. Now, does it take 400 men to come and say hi that's, that's a pretty formidable force. And so right away, Jacob is thinking to himself, Esau is going to kill me. And if, any, if I try to marshal my uh, guys, my servants, to fight against them, I don't have 400 fighters. They're going to clean our clocks. I'm, de- I'm a dead man. So what does he come up with? He comes up with a plan. And what does that plan involve? Various droves of a present. He's, boy, I'll tell you what, it's amazing. Look what, look how um, impressive this is. So he stayed there that night at Bethel, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes, female sheep, and 20 rams. 30 milking camels with their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. Wow! They're really laying it on thick here. Uh, they're, they're very, very uh, solicitous, solicitous towards, towards uh, Esau. So you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you'll, you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. 
Now, the following statement that Jacob makes is very important. For he, that is Jacob, thought, I may appease him <coughs> excuse me, with a present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed at night in the camp. Of course, he wrestled with the angel uh, that night. But the thing we want to see here is this word uh, that is translated in verse 20, perhaps I will appease him. All right, so what does the uh, English word appease mean? Anyone? What do you what do you do? Yes. Pardon? Okay. Placate somebody, satisfy somebody. Somebody was at odds against you, so you give them this massive present and you think that that's going to affect um, a better attitude towards you than he had before. Now, the verb appease is kafir. And it says, perhaps I will propitiate his face. That's a literal translation of the Hebrew here. What does his face have to do with anything? How do you propitiate somebody's face? Well, what is, what is a person who's really upset with you, what's his facial expression? Not very good. Something like, you know, it's not, you know, real happy looking. And so what, the reason why I picked the term propitiate is that that refers to an offering or a gift that's intended to basically satisfy someone's wrath over something you've done to them. And it's such a key theological term because we have all incurred the wrath of God by our sin. God is not neutral about our sin. Why? Because he's holy. The number one aspect of God that the book of Leviticus wants us to understand is that God is holy. What does that mean? That means that the sum total of his infinite character is absolutely beyond understanding in its greatness. He is loving beyond what we could possibly understand as loving. We, we can't understand the depths of his love. He is gracious beyond our depth of understanding of what it is to be gracious. He is righteous to an infinite degree. There's no sin in him. He has no part of sin. He cannot countenance sin because his righteousness is infinite. And he's just. He must mete out judgment when he finds sin. But wait a minute. I just said before, 
He's infinite in his grace. How is he going to be infinite in his grace and infinite in his justice? How is it possible for him to forgive the sin of human beings? He must be propitiated. There has to be a sacrifice to stand in our stead, in judgment. God's wrath has to be poured out on the sacrifice if it's the one and only qualified sacrifice who ever lived, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And God is building into his people this idea that God's presence, his his being, must be propitiated through the sacrifice that he has designated is acceptable propitiation to him. Now, as we turn out, as we find out here uh, in chapter 32 as it progresses, when, uh, and into chapter 33, when indeed Esau and Jacob finally meet, what's Esau's attitude? What, what do you mean with all these incredible animals, this, this massive present? You don't need to give me that. Here, just keep what you are going to give me. Jacob, Jacob responds, oh, please, may, may my lord Esau keep, keep these animals. It's just my goodwill present to you. But apparently the Lord had already worked in Esau's heart. And although Esau may have been uh, full of murderous intent, when they finally meet, he's not anymore. How did that happen? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But uh, maybe the Lord appeared to Esau and said, don't you dare touch a hair of your brother's head. I don't know. We don't know. But whatever the case, we see a very graphic illustration from everyday human life of what the concept of kafir atonement means. It's a propitiation of the Lord. It basically is a purging of sin, a purification from sin, and a ransom from the death that sin rightly brings. And God wants his people, right at the beginning of the foundation of their covenant with God in the history of the, of the nation, he wants them to understand there's no way for me to dwell with you and you to dwell in my presence unless there is a propitiation given for your sin. All right, any questions on this? Do we, let me ask you a question. How often, yeah, Hans? Yeah, Hans is asking a good question. What is the relationship between the offerer putting his hand on the head of the animal and then the animal's death? Is there a passing on of sin 
from the individual to the animal. And of course, you're going to read commentaries, and uh, some are going to argue that that's the case. I think, though, what we want to see here is that the offerer is simply identifying himself with that animal. Uh, I'm putting my hand on the animal so that that animal now, I'm identified with him. He's going to be my sacrifice. It's like when we lay hands on a new deacon and we ordain him. There's no passing of sin from the deacons to the new deacon. They're just, we're just identifying, yes, this, we've, we are making the choice, the, the, the church is confirming this, that this is to be a new deacon. And so it's, it's a thing of identification. That's a good question. Any other questions? Yes. We're about to get to that. Yes, you're right, it is. Uh, the, the Hebrew text is not exactly crystal clear in making certain because it's a, it's a passive voice verb. We talked about that in the, the message here this morning. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the idea here is that makes the best sense in the context that it is the sacrificer himself who, in fact, uh, slits the animal's throat. All right, so that's the next thing here. The slaughtering of the animal, verse 5. Let's take a look there. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. All right, but notice there seems to be a contrast between the he and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and the uh, the uh, ESV says, throw the blood against the sa- sides of the altar. Now, the he, I think, is best understood as the offerer himself. He's already got his hand. He's leaning his weight on the animal's head. And then that apparently is to keep the animal from rearing its head back before he has an opportunity to cut the animal's throat from one side to the other in one swift and deadly maneuver. Have you, how many, has anybody here ever slit an animal's throat? Oh, one, two, anybody over? Three? Because this used to be a fairly common thing on an American uh, farm. People who owned animals, there, became a, there came a time when they would, they would butcher an animal, a cow, a pig, something like this. Uh, and, then, uh, and, and so there was a direct correlation between this animal dies, so I have something to eat. But now, in American culture, what do we do? If we want some, if we want a nice hamburger, we go to the store, and there in the case is all, is, are all these packages of hamburger meat. They're wrapped in cellophane. They're, they're sitting in a very clean environment. There's no so- association with the fact that some cow somewhere 
in some slaughtering house had its throat, well, I don't know, it, it died. Most of the time they, they, they kill these, these cows with a, uh, like a air gun that has a, a round ball, steel ball, and it, they, they shoot it into his head, and that retracts, and, and he dies, and the next one comes along, and they, they kill that one. But then they slaughter it. They, they drain the blood out, and they, they uh, you know, do their thing. <laughs> Never will forget one time. One of my colleagues at the seminary has a son who wanted to go deer hunting. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll take you guys out as guests, and we'll see if we can get you one. So we went out there, and I put he and his son in one stand, and I went to another stand, and where, who do you suppose, I, you know, I wanted, the, I put them in a stand where I thought, there's surely going to be a deer that's going to come out. And the deer came out in front of my stand. And so I obliged and I, I shot it. Okay, nice six-point buck. Ooh, nice, nice deer. Well, then it was time to take it to the processor. <laughs> and my colleague had never been to a deer processor before. And his son had never been to a deer processor before. They had never been to any kind of slaughterhouse. And uh, so I waltzed in there, and the guy put, well, he, he was going to process my deer after he was done with the one that was hanging currently. He was in the process of skinning it, and then they, what they do is they hang the animal <clears throat> up in a refrigerated unit that causes it to age a bit before they actually grind it up. But it was the sight of deer hanging on a hook <clears throat> being skinned that my colleague just about couldn't take. He looked at me and he said, I feel sick to my stomach. Yeah, there's nothing pretty about an animal's death. There, can you imagine, that's why I say up here, can you imagine anything that you would not ever forget more than slitting a large animal's throat like a bull and then watching the blood pour out? The priest would collect it in a specially designed basin. Uh, of course, he wouldn't get all of it, but <clears throat> he would get a lot of it because the animal would continue to live. The heart would keep beating long enough to collect a lot of blood. I don't know how much blood. I, I guess I could have found out before Sunday school by Googling it. How much blood does a bull have? But it would be a lot and this, there is a direct correlation between the, the offerer's sin and the shedding of that animal's blood. It would make a graphic impression on the, on the sinner, on the offerer, that he would most likely never, ever forget. And so he would realize my sin, my condition, 
as a sinner before God requires the shedding of blood. Not mine, but my ascension offerings blood. He died in my place, shed his blood so I could be, my sin could be atoned for. Is there, is there any clearer way the Lord could have prepared his people Israel for the ultimate sacrifice, the, the ultimate ascension offering who would someday, once for all, for all time, sacrifice himself and be the atonement for our sin. Do we wake up in the morning and think to ourselves, today my sin is forgiven because of the shed blood of my Savior. Do we thank the Lord for that every single day? Do we start the day with a prayer, Lord, help me today to live in such a way that you get the glory for the way I live, empowered by your indwelling spirit. That's our sense of the presence of our holy God with us. Do we thank him that that's our only hope of salvation? Or have we become too used to the fact that we are saved individuals? Not a day ought to go by without us thanking the Lord for the ultimate gift he has given us. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the sacrifice of our Savior. We're thankful for his death on Calvary's cross, the shedding of his blood for us, for the propitiation of your wrath that that resulted in. And now your face has changed towards us. Your face has been propitiated, and we are accepted in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.